Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME. T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hello, and welcome to the TMA's Practice Well podcast and cme to go We would like to welcome you, the listener, and thank you for taking the time to learn about the importance of blood-led testing and reporting in Texas. This is a collaboration with Medicaid CHIP, Texas Health and Human Services, Texas Health Steps, Texas Blood-Led Surveillance Branch and Childhood-Led Poisoning Prevention Program, and the Texas Medical Association. Today, your distinguished guests include Dr. Lauren Gamble. She is a pediatric hospitalist who practices at Dell Children's Medical Center of Central Texas. She is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical Schools. She is the chair of the Texas Medical Association Child and Adolescent Health Committee. Dr. Larry Llewellyn has served as the Associate Medical Director with the Texas Health and Human Services Division of Medicaid and CHIP Services since 2017. Before that, he served as an Associate Medical Director with Texas Medicaid Health Care Partnership, and prior to that, he was in private practice of pediatrics in Austin, Texas for many years. Terry Sparks has over 35 years of nursing experience in women's health, pediatrics, and nursing leadership. Since January 2022, Terry has been a manager with the HHSC Medical Dental Benefits Program. Her team includes the SHARES Program, Texas Health Steps, Medical and Dental Programs, and the Case Management for Children and Pregnant Women Program. In addition, Terry has been the subject matter expert for Texas Health Steps checkups, including blood lead screening since joining the Texas Health Steps program 
in 2012. Finally, Vanessa Cantu is the Blood Lead Surveillance Branch Manager and Epidemiologist with Blood Lead Surveillance at Department of State Health Services. Ms. Cantu is responsible for overseeing the branch, planning and conducting epidemiological studies, surveillance projects, case management, and childhood lead poisoning prevention program grant. She has over 16 years of public health service, including infectious disease epidemiology and public health microbiology. I would like to introduce myself as your moderator. I'm Jerry Ann Huey, the program coordinator with Texas Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program at the Texas Department of State Health Services. Welcome and thank you all for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us and having this conversation with us today. It's such an important topic and we're excited to be here. Today, we're gonna to focus on the importance of lead testing and reporting in Texas and the practicalities of testing and responding to elevated lead levels. And of course, this is an essential topic for all of us, but first let's get some background about why we test children for lead in Texas. We have a law, Texas law states that it requires reporting of blood lead tests, elevated and non-elevated for children younger than 15 years of age. The Texas Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program manages these reports for children's blood lead tests as mandated by our health and safety code. Dr. Llewellyn, can you first define for us lead poisoning and why it is essential that we're aware of it? Thank you, Jerrianne. Um, from a lab perspective, until recently, an elevated blood lead level of five micrograms per deciliter was considered in the uh, unacceptable range. And since uh, 2021, it has been 3.5 micrograms per deciliter. But no level is considered benign. From a clinical perspective, obvious or subclinical damage to an organ system would be the definition. And lead can damage almost any organ. Lead has been used for many centuries. It has actually a lot of uh, great properties, and unfortunately, some uses persist. And so therefore, it's found in many places. It's in the, on surfaces, in the air, the water, in the soil, houses with lead paint, uh, near roadways and anywhere leaded gasoline was used, near industrial facilities dealing with lead, in hobby areas or gun ranges, uh, in some pottery and older toys. Uh, lead is easily ingested orally or by inhalation. And in thinking about this, I was reminded that uh, it can even be ingested through the skin. Lead has no known beneficial function in the body. It does interfere with enzyme activity and it interferes with neuron development and damages mature neurons. It also interferes with heme synthesis in the blood. So it's essential to prevent lead exposure and to detect elevated lead levels by testing. Thank you, Dr. Llewellyn. Dr. Gamble, we know that many physicians and some parents probably think of old paint products, leaded gasoline and water pipes when they think about lead. But what are some other reasons uh, we test children for lead and why it's still relevant today? What are different ways those children can get lead poisoning that they might not be aware of? 
Such a great question. The first thing that I really want to establish here is that lead poisoning is really completely preventable. And you're exactly right. The most common ways that kids get lead poisoning is through lead paste paints in older homes. So if your house, your apartment, um, or child's daycare center was built before 1978, it's highly, highly likely that that building contains lead paint. And children get lead poisoning from breathing in or swallowing dust from that old lead paint most commonly. And so it can be found on floors and window sills. It can be on their hands or on their toys, but lead can enter the skin through a variety of different reasons. And really lead is ubiquitous in our environments. And so there are all kinds of different places where lead can be found as well. Lead can contaminate things like herbal remedies um, or medicines. We've found it in different um, cosmetic products or spices even. It's possible that lead can contaminate water that flows through older lead pipes or can contaminate food that's stored in bowls that are, that are glazed or painted with lead. Thank you. Vanessa, are there any other, from our looking at our surveillance system, are there any other areas you would highlight that where children can um, ingest lead? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. And yeah, Dr. Llewellyn and Dr. Gamble covered sort of the gamut of it, but another area to consider would be um, certain jobs and hobbies that the adults in the household are involved with working with lead-based products, and this can be brought into the home as well, and so that's another area of concern. Thank you. It seems to me that when you're, I mean, it's really hard, right? As a physician, you have this child in your office for a few minutes, but that, that, that health checkup and those questions that you're asking the parents just got a little bit bigger. Um, so I know that it, it, it's a big job and that we're all looking, you know, to make sure we do the best thing for our clients. Dr. Llewellyn, to drive home the importance of blood lead testing um, and prevention to our audience, how are we doing in Texas in regard to testing Medicaid enrolled children? Um, first of all, lead testing is mandated as part of Texas Health Steps uh, exams at ages 12 and 24 months. Reporting of all lead levels is required by law. So uh, Texas DSHS statistics indicate uh, elevated lead levels across the state ranging from just under 1% of all reported tests to nearly 3% of all reported tests. So that's not insignificant. A 2021 report by the United States Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General created quite a stir because it found very low levels of lead testing completion at these ages in Medicaid children across the country and highlighted several states, uh, including Texas. In Texas, uh, unfortunately, about 57% were not reported as receiving a lead test at 12 months. About 69% were not reported as receiving a lead test at 24 months. And cumulatively, about 34% not reported as receiving any lead test by three years. Texas DSHS statistics indicate a low level of testing for non-medicated covered children also. So it's important that we pay attention to this. And Vanessa, what would be our call to action if, when we're looking what we know from our statistics, from our surveillance system, as well as that OIG report? What would you consider our call to action to be to our audience? Yeah, so um, I think our call to action would be to overall as a state increase the testing statewide 
for blood lead. We do have screening and testing guidelines in Texas that I will cover in a little bit. But overall, you know, we want to increase testing. That way we can get an overall picture of blood lead in Texas. Great. Thank you. Now I'd like to ask a question of Terry, who is with Texas Health Steps. Terry, what age group is the most vulnerable to lead? And how is Texas Health Step working with physicians to protect the children of Texas? Terry, yeah, and that's a great question. So uh, lead is toxic to everyone and all children. But those children who are younger than six are those that are most significantly at risk for problems from it. This is because their bodies absorb information, contaminations, et cetera, more quickly than older kids and adults do. Children who are nine months through two years of age are more likely to have higher lead levels because they crawl around, put their hands and other things into their mouths, such as toys, et cetera. Therefore, Texas Health Steps requires blood lead testing at the 12-month and 24-month checkups. Blood lead testing is required as well for any child up through uh, six years of age who has not been previously tested and is enrolled in Texas Health Steps or Medicaid. Thank you, Terry. That's great. So, Vanessa, what are kind of our guidelines about children who are not enrolled in Texas Health Steps? Because just chil- other children are also affected. It's just not children within Texas Health Steps. What are the recommendations for children who are not enrolled in Texas Health Steps? Yes, you are correct. Um, we do have recommended screening and testing guidelines in Texas for testing both lead that include children that are not enrolled in Medicaid. So if there is an environmental factor that in- indicates possible lead exposure, a child should be tested. There is also a lead risk questionnaire that can be used to identify children who are at risk for lead exposure. And then screening can also be determined based on a child residing in a targeted zip code. And so the targeted zip codes were developed to include areas where there might be a higher percentage of children with an elevated blood lead level or a higher percentage of residential structures um, built before 1950. So older homes in the area. So a a child should be tested if they reside in a targeted zip code. And we do have that list of targeted zip codes that can be found in our childhood blood lead screening guidelines, along with the lead risk questionnaire um, that can be found on the DSHS website, and I believe will be provided with the resources. But in addition, a parent can request that a child be tested, and they should be tested, or if there is clinical suspicion, again, they should be tested. And I think we've mentioned this, you know, there are no apparent symptoms when a child is exposed to lead. And so a blood test is the easiest way to determine if a child has been exposed to lead and if there is a concern. Thank you, Vanessa. So we've, we've kind of gone over the background of, you know, what we know that lead exists in many different environments. We know that children can inhale it and uh, eat it. Um, We know that we're not testing children adequately in Texas, and we really want to improve that. And we know that testing and reporting are not only necessary, but in some cases, it is the law. And we in this group kind of know, because we we deal with this on a daily basis, that there are no apparent symptoms, as, as Vanessa said, when a child is exposed to lead. And because of this, a blood lead test is really the best way to determine if a child is exposed to lead. So Terry, I want to ask you, um, what test does Texas Health Steps and the state lab accept? 
Texas Health Steps allows two different types of testing. The first type of testing would be a finger stick or a capillary test. Lots of providers typically do this um, type of test first to determine if the child has lead in their blood. This allows them to test the child while they're in the office, receive the result while they're in the office, and test it in the office through, if they're choosing to do that, point of care testing. Physicians may also choose to take that capillary blood test and, and submit it to the DSHS laboratory, and it will be covered through the Texas Health Step checkup and tested that way. The other way that, that physicians can test is to draw a venous blood sample. These specimens must be submitted to the DSHS laboratory for review and testing if it is the initial blood test that is being done. Of course, the venous blood draw is the test that is always used to confirm an elevated capillary blood test. And this test can be submitted to any laboratory of the provider's choice, including the DSHS lab. Again, venous samples are more reliable in identifying lower blood lead levels than capillary samples because they're analyzed using a higher complexity method. And they also, a lot of times, are better at preventing contamination um, that can happen sometimes during a capillary blood draw. And when you talk about contamination, I'm sure our audience as physicians understands what that means, but for me as a layperson, or if you're explaining it to a parent, what do you want to do to make sure you get the best draw for the um, test for the sample? Um, great question. Again, um, one of the best things that can be done is, is thorough hand washing, both of the person that's going to be doing the capillary draw and of the patient. And that can be a finger stick or a heel stick typically it's going to be a finger stick. So always washing with soap and water to remove any lead contamination from the skin, and then um, making sure and drying, dry the hands well before donning gloves uh, for that. Texas Health Steps does provide information on, on best methods for blood specimen collection in some of our online provider uh, modules that providers can um, access through our online provider education website. Great. So here's a quick quiz for everybody, and you can all join in. Um, if you're driving down the road, you can uh, think about this one. We have two-year-old Ellie. She's come in for her 24-month preventative medical checkup. She has no record of a blood lead test, and her parent can't remember if she had one before. Ellie is not enrolled in Texas Health Steps, but through questioning her mother, you know that their home that she resides in was built in 1980, but mom mentions her grandmother's home where she spends eight hours a day in daycare during the week was built in 1950 and they are remodeling the kitchen. Should we request a blood lead test based on those screening questions? First one to answer gets a prize. <laughs> Jerry Ann, this is Terry and absolutely Little Ellie is at risk based on spending time at her grandmother's house and the remodeling that is going on. And once that testing is done, it's very, very important that that result get submitted to Texas CLIP and entered into the database. 
Thanks, Terry. I think that's perfect. Dr. Llewellyn and Dr. Gamble, as physicians, what, what other things might you want to know about this child at that point? Any other questions or thoughts that you might have? I think I can go ahead and answer that question. It's a little bit easy, thanks to some really great resources that we have. So I want to point all of our listeners to um, the Texas first, the Texas Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program has a lead risk questionnaire that outlines seven questions that we should all be asking for our patients. And then the there are similar questions available on the Texas Health Steps Child Health Clinical Records forms, and links to both of these forms are available for all of our listeners in the notes page for this episode. Anybody else want to add? Yes, this uh, child is definitely at risk uh, because a house built in 1950 is highly likely to have lead containing paint. Lead uh, paint was not banned in this country until 1978. And from 1940 on, the proportion of lead paint slowly decreased. But at 1950, probably had a lot of lead in it. When you work with that, scrape it off the walls, it uh, creates paint chips the child can ingest. It puts lead in the air that you can breathe. So this child is at risk. As far as other things you might want to know besides the questions are uh, a good developmental exam. So you really need to concentrate on the neurologic and developmental aspects of the exam. Vanessa, this uh, kind of popped into my head while we were, um, while uh, Dr. Gamble and Dr. Llewellyn. Um, do we have recommendations uh, in regards to should that child be in the house during the remodel period because of the amount of dust? And are there resources for parents and families and even physicians to let people know the best way to remodel when you're dealing with lead? Are there things out there that we could help physicians be aware of? Yeah, thanks, Darianne. There are resources to help with, you know, recommendations on how to handle whether a child should be around during a remodel. We do have those resources on our web, our DSHS web, and they'll also be included in the notes for this episode. Okay, so we've talked about testing a little bit, um, but let's delve a little bit further into it because I know Dr. Llewellyn in our conversations in the past, it's uh, kind of the follow-up is, is some of the information is, is where maybe we just don't know where to go when we find out what Ellie's test result is. So let's say you did your venous test. It was the primary one. You sent it to the state lab. It's reported back to you. Ellie has a blood lead level of 12 micrograms per deciliter. You're an A++ physician and you report that to our blood lead surveillance branch. And we'll talk about how we're gonna do that later. But the question is, should we be concerned and kind of what are your next steps or what are the things you wish you knew when you first encountered this? Because I'm sure there's physicians out there wondering, you know, what do I do next? How do, what are my steps? Yes, Darian. Well, a level of 12 is definitely concerning. That's considerably elevated. It's interesting to note that uh, since 1960, as we have become more and more aware of uh, lead toxicity, the acceptable level has fallen. It was uh, a shocking 60 in 1960 and is now down to 3.5 micrograms per deciliter. The urgency of action with this child or any child varies on the detected blood level. So actions uh, can vary from lead source 
education, that's, a, that's appropriate in every case. And they can continue through repeat lab draws, uh, environmental lead investigation, additional lab and neurologic testing and imaging even, uh, all the way up to referral for oral or IV chelation therapy. As Dr. Gamble mentioned, the DSHS has some very useful guides on its website. There's one called uh, form PB109. And according to the guidance on that form, the proper course for a venous lead level of 12 would be to do lead source education, uh, repeat the venous blood level in three months, and if it continues to be elevated, refer for an environmental lead investigation. So that's true. So Dr. Llewellyn's going to send Ellie for her confirmatory test, and that confirmatory test, which he will also report because he's an A++ physician. And, um, but if Ellie's follow-up test comes back and it's over 10 micrograms per deciliter, what do we recommend at the Childhood Lead Poisoning Program? Yes, yeah, so um, there would be continued monitoring of blood lead levels and continue to provide that educational information that Dr. Llewellyn covered. Um, and the, the PB109 form um, is that we call it the reference for our blood lead retesting and medical case management. Um, that's a great tool that we can use. So in Ellie's case, with the second result above 10 micrograms per deciliter, um, a referral for an environmental lead investigation can be requested. So we do have two lead risk assessors that conduct environmental lead investigations um, in the child's primary home. And sometimes there might be a secondary location, like in Ellie's case, you know, her grandmother's house was built in 1950. So an investigation might be conducted there. And normally the investigation is conducted where the child might spend the majority of their time to determine if there are any lead hazards. So with an environmental lead investigation, our risk assessors go into the home. They interview the family for potential lead hazards. They do test areas where children might sleep, where they might play and eat, and they take samples from um, different sources such as dust, paint, soil, and any other items that they might suspect. So to qualify for an environmental lead investigation, a child um, has a result of 20 micrograms or above, or two subsequent results between 10 and 19. So in the case of Ellie, with her follow-up test of 10 micrograms per deciliter, a physician can order or request the environmental-led investigation. Um, one additional note that for children with Medicaid, a physician must order an ELI within 30 days of that qualifying um, blood draw, and this is for billing purposes. So here, um, timeliness of reporting is critical. And I wanna to touch base with Terry. I wanna come back to you, Terry, because there are some other things that Texas Health Steps can do with early childhood intervention with these children. So can you talk to us about that and what the next steps are for Ellie in your process? Thanks, Jerrianne, and you're absolutely correct. Um, during a Texas Health Steps checkup, if a child is suspected to, to have a developmental delay or the possibility of any problems such as that, Texas law requires physicians and others to report um, and refer, refer that child to the Early Childhood Intervention or the ECI program. The ECI program covers children 35 months and younger, and this would include those with a blood lead level of five mic micrograms per deciliter or greater. And again, a uh, physician should refer the child to ECI as soon as possible 
but no later than seven days after identifying an elevated blood lead level. Texas Health Steps um, has information on our webpage about ECI referrals, and physicians can use the Texas Health and Human Services ECI program search to find a local ECI program. The ECI referral form is available as well to physicians and provides all the information that is needed to refer a child to the ECI program, as well as that physician being able to receive follow-up information from ECI. Great, that is fantastic. Um, one of the things I think I wanna step back just for a moment and talking about some things is terminology. A lot of times we're talking about test results. We're talking about test results with a um, certain um, a number of micrograms per deciliter where we're saying elevated uh, blood lead levels. And if you go and you look at uh, possibly the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC guidelines, you would see something called a blood lead reference value. Um, what is that, Vanessa? And how do physicians use that in their practice? So to start, the amount of lead in blood is referred to as the blood lead level, which is, as you mentioned, measured in micrograms of lead per deciliter of blood. A blood lead reference value is used to identify children with blood levels that are higher than most children's levels. And since 2012, a blood lead reference value has of five micrograms per deciliter has been used. So children with a result greater than five micrograms per deciliter was considered to have an elevated blood lead level. Um, as Dr. Llewellyn mentioned earlier, CDC did recommend a recent change um, as of this past October of 2021. Um, CDC now recommends a blood lead reference value of 3.5 um, micrograms per deciliter. Currently, DSHS does plan to implement this lower blood lead reference value of 3.5 at the beginning of the next year, um, 2023. Great, and that brings me to kind of another quiz for us that kind of brings this in. We have Benjamin, and Benjamin has come to the clinic with his parents for his 12-month Texas Health Steps checkup. As required by the periodicity schedule, you tested Benjamin's blood lead level, and you did this by uh, performing a quick capillary finger stick because Benjamin was fussy. And the laboratory results showed that Benjamin's blood lead level is four micrograms per deciliter. So Vanessa, within our new environment with the CDC's recommendations, what do we suggest that this physician does for Benjamin? I don't think we've completely finalized our recommendations. I think, you know, our recommendations for five to nine are going to expand to 3.5 to nine. And so it would be the same follow-up um, that we would be doing for those that are in that five to nine microgram deciliter age group. So I don't know if that's an appropriate response. Let's take a, maybe a different tact on that same type okay. of question. Dr. Llewellyn or Dr. Gamble, based on the CDC's recommendations, would you do some follow-up for Benjamin on that finger stick of four micrograms per deciliter? Yes, well, um, this is Dr. Llewellyn. Uh, looking uh, at the guidelines there, it looks like the first thing to do is simply uh, do a, a venous test to see what uh, that level is. Great, great. 
And I think, you know, physicians, we've had this question that's come into our phone line is, gosh, it's changed. What should I do? If, you know, as physicians, you know best, you have that child in front of you. If you feel that you want to, um, you know, counsel the parent on um, education as far as their home for lead or diet or any of those things, you can do those things. And that's really important to, since this was a finger stick, to make sure that we've gotten a, a good read on that blood lead level. So now the other important thing that I really want to talk about is reporting because we can test all day long, but if we don't report it, we don't know what's happening out there. So let's, we've talked about the law and we've talked about reporting. So Vanessa, why do we need to report our blood lead tests? Yeah, as you mentioned, it is reporting is required by law mandated by Texas Health and Safety Code. And it's important to, to note that all test results, both elevated and non-elevated, should be reported. And this includes reporting by both physicians and laboratories as well. And anybody with a result, a clinic, a hospital, should be reporting that result to us. Overall, the data that we receive from a sort of a surveillance standpoint, um, the data are used to help identify populations at risk for elevated blood lead levels. Um, and to ensure screening services are provided to groups with a high risk of lead poisoning. And then also to ensure environmental and medical follow-up are provided to children with identified with an elevated blood lead level. Overall, you know, reporting should in com include complete demographic testing and provider information, which is all required by law. So we need the required data, we need the complete data, quality data, and we need the data to be reported in a timely fashion. When, you, when we're talking about timely, I think the law says immediately. What, what do we kind of expect people to do? Yeah, I mean, I think immediately is the law. And as soon as results come in, they should be reported to us. Um, we do have a couple of ways that results are reported and um, they're reported electronically. And that is the preferred method. That way, you know, timeliness um, it improves timeliness overall of reporting, but although reports can still be sent by fax or mail. And I think one additional point I want to make sure is, or stress, is, you know, both physicians and laboratories should be reporting. Um, we often find that physicians do not think they need to report because the laboratory is reporting and vice versa, but we do need both to report. A lot of times physicians might have more complete demographic information on the patient, and the lab has the testing information, so it's separate information bases. And we need both of those, all those pieces to get the data elements that are important for us. So kind of back to our um, example with Ellie, because Ellie had two tests. So Dr. Llewellyn did the first test, which was venous. He sent that through the state lab. He received that uh, result back that was 10 micrograms per deciliter. So what you're saying is Dr. Llewellyn would then at that time report that lab with the children, the child's demographics, the the testing information, his information. And then our state lab would also report that into our system. Is that correct? That is correct. Great. And um, the other thing I heard you say is if Dr. Willowellen doesn't have access to put stuff in electronically, he can fax it to us. Is that correct? That is correct. We, we say electronic is preferred, but Forms can be faxed in. Um, we also do receive facts that are mailed. Okay, great. And Terry, is there anything Texas Health Steps has on the reporting side of 
blood lead values that you'd like to add? Absolutely, Gary Ann. Texas Health Steps has regional uh, provider relations staff that can assist any physicians who are enrolled in Medicaid and Texas Health Steps with not only how to do uh, blood lead testing, but also how to report blood lead testing. So any physician can um, go to the Texas Health Steps website where we have a list of regional for, uh, DSHS, Texas Health Steps, provider relations staff, contact that person and get training or assistance at any time. Great, Terry. Dr. Llewellyn, you and I have had lots of conversations about kind of the practicalities of what you think physicians in the field really, uh, it would be helpful for them to know or where to get resources. Is there anything you wanna add or summarize about today's discussion that would be helpful for our audience? Well, I think the uh, resources we've mentioned here, especially Terry, are uh, all very helpful. American Academy of Pediatrics, of course, has information. And uh, these uh, forms on the DSHS website are, are very helpful also. So Terry, I wanna ask you, um, do you have a summarization that you would like to provide? Yes, Texas Health Steps does require, of course, the testing at 12 and 24 months of age during the Texas Health Step checkup. However, we also encourage physicians as part of anticipatory guidance, which is a requirement of each and every Texas Health Step checkup, that they utilize the questionnaire to screen all children for exposure to blood lead contaminants at every checkup, birth through six years of age, when they aren't required to do testing. That Those questions are again available on the, the blood lead questionnaire, and they're available on the Texas Health Steps child health record forms, which are not required forms, but very optional forms. And in Texas Health Steps encourages providers to use those forms in order to complete um, complete Texas Health Step checkups. Okay. And Dr. Gamble, do you have a summarization that you would like to provide for your Texas Medical Association colleagues? So I just want to remind everybody, you know, we know that lead has real detrimental impacts on children's health and development. And sometimes the symptoms can be so subtle from that at first, but these impacts can be lifelong and have lifelong consequences for kids. And so really the only way for us to, to discover this and to do anything about it is that we're testing and we are, we're screening and we're testing, and then we're taking the appropriate actions when those tests come back abnormal. Great, and I wanna thank each and every one of you for your time today to talk about blood lead testing, prevention and reporting in Texas. You know, it, it is a wonderful program that we have uh, and I'm just so thankful that you guys are, were willing to step up today and help us get the word out as to why it is so important to our children and to our communities to test our children, all children for blood lead poisoning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Darianne. Thank you so much. We hope you found our discussion beneficial. To claim CME, just click the link to the TMA Education Center and follow the instructions on the CME to go page for this episode. Until next time, stay well.